Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Michael Louie. He is the founder at Cerebrium, and they did the YC in winter 2020. I'm sorry, 2022. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. No, thanks for having me. Excited to, to be here. Uh, so what is uh, Cerebrium? So we're a platform that makes it easy for companies to fine-tune, deploy machine learning models. Um, and so basically, we create abstractions on two levels. One is we take care of all infrastructure when it comes to machine learning, whether it's GPUs, queuing, scaling, things like that. But then also the research element. So how do we get models to run more, um, you know, faster, cheaper on you know different types of hardware? Um, how do we make sure that models perform better from like a performance review? How do you um, fine-tune them? Um, and so, yeah, that's what we do. What, what are the main problems with running uh, LLMs or any of other types of machine learning algorithms on CPUs? Why why are GPUs so much better at it? So the, the whole thing between CPUs and GPUs is how like they do uh, kind of matrix multiplication. So CPUs are kind of support what these like LLMs are done with. And so that's why GPUs are needed. And the whole reason why it's such an issue to run them in production is because CPU programs are typically a couple megabytes, uh, maybe even less than that, whereas these LLMs, you know, are like even tens of gigs, even 100 gigs plus. And um, the second thing is GPUs are extremely expensive. And so to constantly run GPUs 24-7, it's just unattainable, even for large enterprises um, at their scale. So if you think about it, a CPU can cost I know, a, million, a millionth of a cent per second, whereas the GPU is maybe like a hundredth of a cent. And so companies are trying to use it the exact same way as any existing API, but their costs are basically a hundred thousand to a million times more. Um, and so that's why serverless is such a big thing for GPUs. However, loading in models that are a hundred gigabytes in a couple seconds into memory is a, a pretty difficult problem. And that's kind of what we solve. Mm. Okay, that's really interesting. So I imagine with these these GPU, the GPU just total lack of supply in terms of GPUs has led to a lot more interest in what you guys are doing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's just that. And then also just, you know, the cost of even generating, using a kind of hosted endpoint like OpenAI on Tropic is also just unattainable. Um, you know, if you have to make, I think it's a million API requests to OpenAI a month, um, or sorry, daily for a month, so 30 million a month then your costs are like a couple tens of thousands of dollars, which is just unattainable for any startup to pay. Um, and then you know, when you get to enterprise, when it's like a couple hundred million a day. Um, and so companies look to deploy open source machine learning models that are one faster for a latency point of view, and then cheaper from like a cost perspective. Do you think that current LMs have a business moat? Um, or do you think open source is going to eat their lunch? Um, it's actually interesting. I actually just read a, an article today from Lightspeed saying how I think there's going to be a world where it's just kind of joined, um, where for generalist use cases, you know, the, the models coming from Anthropic and OpenAI will definitely exist, um, just to kind of handle overflowing use cases and maybe even you know consumer use cases where a consumer might want you to help them with shopping, but then suddenly with your like 
travel tickets, whatever the case may be. Um, however, with, with other use cases, like around a business where things can be very specific. So for example, with, let's say Instacart, everything's around specifically grocery delivery and e-commerce. Um, they could fine tune smaller models that are like a lot more specialized or cheaper and faster to run. And so, and then if anything's like outside of that realm, they could actually then send that to a kind of open AI. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's definitely going to be an opportunity where both kind of coexist. That's uh, very interesting. And I haven't heard that before. So essentially um, there are going to be a lot of fine tuned models uh, that are enterprise specific that the enterprise actually take in house. And then outside of those specific kind of fine tuned models, then you have the larger generalized LLMs that are centralized. Um, and uh, is that accurate? Yeah, well, I think just to put it in perspective, I think if you have to think about any customer support bot, um, let's say requesting a, a kind of response from GPT is a $1, let's say per generation. So if a customer asks a question saying, what do you do? Do you really need a kind of 100 billion parameter model to answer that question and cost you $1? Or could you rather use a model that's going to cost you, you know, 10 cents and tell you like, we're a machine learning company that makes it easy to deploy models. Um, and that's kind of like the whole, I guess, the whole architecture of how we think companies will evolve when they think of machine learning and LLMs in the future. Mm, interesting. So, you know, okay, so that's maybe the next year, two years. And this is a difficult question, but where are we in five years? Like, what do, what does machine learning offer us in five years? Geez, I think at the moment, I mean, so much has just happened in the last year, but five years seems like, I mean, anything can happen. I think one thing we're going to see is cool. So I think, um, yeah, a lot's happened in the last couple of years. I think, sorry, the last year that um, predicting kind of five years out is, is quite a lot to ask. But I think a couple of things is we're definitely going to see more companies get into the chip space. Uh, you know, Facebook's already released some stuff um, on chips. Uh, AWS has the Inferentia and Tranium uh, instances, which are, by the way, massive supply. I mean, AWS is trying to convert a lot of their clients to go from NVIDIA GPUs to those. However, there's just some specifics, but anyway. Um, and so I think, one, we're going to see a lot more companies get into the kind of the chip space, and they're going to be specialized chips for specific workloads. Like, I think mm -hmm. Facebook will kind of work more on kind of the consumer use cases, and, you know, others might work on other use cases. The second thing, I think we're going to see a lot more agents. I think one of the big blockages for agents right now um, besides just a lot of tooling and infrastructure stuff about evaluating um, kind of answers is the fact that the latency and cost of running these models is too much. Um, at the moment, most agents integrate with GPT-4 and to take 20 seconds for every single generation when agents do like tens or even hundreds of generations is just too long. Um, what's quite funny is it's technically replacing, let's say, some human jobs and saying something takes like five minutes is too long when a normal person would take like half an hour. It's just an interesting perspective. I think um, the third thing is that, you know, a lot of companies obviously, you know, very excited about uh, kind of generative AI and LMs, but I think it's going to lead them to be more open to kind of traditional machine learning cases um, and be a lot more like multimodal. Um, so, you know, they'll have like NLP and LLMs in one case, they'll have maybe audio in another case, like customer support calls, they'll have like inventory forecasting for uh, kind of e-commerce companies. And while these enterprise companies do that already, um, I think kind of we're going to see kind of small and medium enterprises get more into traditional machine learning as well. And there's still a lot of investment in that space as well. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, you know, imagine we're going to see that over the next kind of three years. The wild world, such a wild world. Uh, so what is the difference between an autonomous, autonomous agent and AGI? 
if if they're autonomous and they're agents, like what's the difference between that and AGI? Well, I mean, AGI is kind of the same term as like why someone calls it AI and machine learning. And there's always debates about it, like between who's correct and who's not between like the intellectual, I don't want to say snobs, but <laughs> like researchers. And um, autonomous agents means, you know, they can generate their own tasks based on like the prompts that you give it. Um, the one thing is that at the moment, each token output is just a statistical approximation of what the next letter is going to be in the sequence based on all the previous sequences. Whereas AGI, I guess, is trying to challenge that saying that, you know, mm. it's not mm. a statistical approximation. It's like a real understanding of the like semantic language, maybe with, you know, a few other things. Um, I wouldn't say I have, like too much of an opinion on it just because for me it's like ai machine learning i think agi is just like some terminator reference um but yeah i think it's definitely gonna be quite a while till we get to agi yeah so you don't think if a if a if an agent you know can go off and do its own task and kind of like do something without being observed and make decisions and such you don't think that's agi basically no it's the same as like if i tell someone something like um you know, if I define a workflow in Zapier, um, I don't know, it just, I mean, even though I'm setting exactly the steps that it takes and all this is doing is coming up with new steps, it just doesn't seem, because it can't deviate from the path that I've given it. Um, and so, yeah, for me, that's just not AGI. I mean, AGI is something where it has very little context and understanding of something. It can go search the web, understand it more. Um, I get how, I guess how some, I can see how people get like, kind of uh, use it to uh, interoperably. But um, yeah, for me, it's I would imagine something a bit smarter. Yeah, interesting. And what do you th what do you think about this multimodal world that we're entering? You had mentioned multimodal, and for my listeners who don't understand, that's like having a bunch of different ways that they can consume information. Is that an accurate representation? Oh well, when I refer to multimodal, I mean just um, there's different models working in tandem to come oh, like generate an output. So, um, for example, um, you know, if I give you a, like a video of this podcast is, you know, you could obviously transcribe it uh, to, to, in order to get the transcript. I could use, you know, what's actually happening in the video itself and then use a combination of those two things to get context and understanding of, like, what's actually going on. Um, you know, one, like, one thing is even, like, sports commentary. Um, you know, sports commentator can obviously freak out when someone's dunked the basket, but um, it could also give you a context by saying the shot clock was, you know, at one second left before, like, you know... Um, LeBron made like a dunk. So that's kind of what I refer to as multimodal. It's just when there's multiple models working in tandem to kind of get an output. Interesting. And so what about giving the AI different sensory implications? I just saw something today about having a sense of smell that they somehow replicated the sense of smell. Uh, so, and, you know, we've got the human senses where we've got uh, vision, which seems to have already been tackled and is going to get a lot better tackled. We've got reasoning and executive ability, making decisions and such. Uh, I wonder, is there hearing? I guess there is hearing as well. Um, but then there's also like non-human sensory stuff like infrared, um, all these different ways that, you know, a machine could basically understand reality. What do you think about what's going on in this general sphere? Well, I think, um, I mean, it, there's been some pretty interesting stuff that's come out, but I think it's the same as, you know, machine learning models will be able to do things that we as humans can't do. For example, like you mentioned infrared, like a human can't pick up infrared. Um, <clears throat> however, intuition is something or gut feel is something that a, you know, machine, like a model can't pick up. And so I think there's a lot of differences. I even read that article about, you know, Apple had their iPhone release event, uh, yesterday 
And they talked about how when you pinch your thumb and finger together on a new watch, there's some sort of blood flow that like that it can pick up or something ridiculous. Um, and like, I just found that was fascinating. And so I think there's definitely a lot of applications just where there's kind of this like, you know, basically just inputs of, of multiple data sources into these models that make it a lot more accurate. Um, so, yeah. And uh, what, what about a phone? When are we going to get a phone with like native AI? I mean, I guess native AI already exists in this type of phone, but when am I going to be able to have a phone uh, that basically implements a, an, at least like a chat GPT LLM into the phone itself so that I can start using that technology, not just like on a bot, but actually having that technology go and do things on, on my phone. When do you think that's going to happen? I mean, I, there's definitely, a, you know, I would say definitely a couple dozen companies already working on it. I think everyone was hoping that Apple would make a re- was going to make a release yesterday about it. Um, I think there's a couple of challenges there where just, you know, these kind of on-device LLMs are just, you know, there's just not enough powerful compute to run these things yeah. on-device quite yet. Um, it's definitely, you know, improving at a rapid scale. So I think it's definitely going to get there. I think the second thing that everyone's trying to work out is, um, you know, hallucinations. So you don't want it to like, maybe do something or book something or say something that's kind of not in line with I guess, your persona or what you're expecting. And I think the third thing is just how it has access to your data. You know, what data do you want it to have access to? What don't you, what is it going to train on? Is it just going to train on device? Um, and so I would say those are a lot of the things that companies are currently trying to work on and solve. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I would say it's th- the main limitation is probably a, a hardware one. Yeah, it's hardware. Interesting. Um, and hallucination, let's go into that. Sounds like you might have some some specific knowledge that a lot of my guests, other guests, don't have uh is there anything that we can do about hallucinations like is it just a problem that we that these llms are going to have or are we able to actually solve this problem of hallucinations i mean there's many solutions that we've seen our clients implement already i think it also depends on the use case itself um you know one thing that all our clients kind of i guess weigh is or trade-off is three things cost latency and accuracy so for legal clients, you know, they don't care how much it costs and they don't care how long it takes as long as it's accurate because you can't be wrong in the law. Yeah. Whereas maybe for like stories and like content generation, I kind of just care about speed and cost. I don't really care about accuracy. Um, obviously, to a certain extent, that is. Um, but when it comes to hallucinations, also we have companies that do things like scraping websites using LLMs. And they can use a, a framework like Guidance, which is from Microsoft, which kind of can create a fixed output for your generation as your LLMs do. And I mean, look, the, the generation of those LLMs do can still be like, I guess, variable, but at least it comes in a very specific format, which is JSON that, you know, can be kind of consumed by different APIs. Um, other use cases we've seen is just kind of a whole pipeline of evaluations of training other models to evaluate, um, I guess, the, the generations. However, the big issue that we've seen clients do with there is the latency. You know, how many checks do you do? Um, you know, do you just kind of give it a, a one or a zero to say it was a positive generation or not, and then continuously fine tune? Um, I think, you know, it's still a problem a lot of companies are trying to solve, and I don't think anyone, at least that I know, has kind of got it. There's a lot of companies that claim they've reduced it as much as possible, and I think just, that just comes with as many kind of checks in a workflow as possible. Interesting. Okay, that, that was so interesting. It, it, and I was right. You did have int- information I haven't uh, thought about yet. Um I would love to take it into a sort of a philosophical lens if you're if you're willing to go there. Um, what how has working with AI and how has working with machine learning changed your life philosophy, the way that you view reality, if at all? Well, I think the the main thing that I mean, the whole reason that we started the company um was at my previous business, which was in the e-commerce space, 
we were growing rapidly and we wanted to, we were basically like an Instacart um, equivalent. And um, we wanted, you know, margins are very low in a company like that. And so we wanted to optimize route delivery, um, inventory forecasting, cross zone up zone, all of these things. And it was probably the hardest thing that I've ever implemented, mm-hmm. hence why we started Terebrium. However, once we implemented these models and got them into production, it completely changed the way the company operated. And for me, what was fascinating was that no one knew what best practice was, even though machine learning has been around for you know, let's say decades. Um, and just seeing how it's only accessible to large enterprises because of the time it takes and the investment and the personnel required. And um, yeah, I guess kind of our whole vision was to make machine learning more accessible to smaller companies, you know, medium-sized enterprises. And um, we're hoping to achieve the same thing of where we can make companies kind of optimize different processes and achieve greater scale without having such a heavy resource burden. And so I would say like my kind of philosophy, I know this is kind of like a detour, but I'm coming back, um, is that I think it's going to rapidly change the way that businesses operate. Um, you know, by automating a lot of tasks, I think the access to information, I mean, even with the internet, it's really quite a lot, but to kind of um, absorb the information at our, at our disposal is going to become a lot easier and cheaper um you know i'm i'm from south africa originally and so we have a lot of um, shortages in terms of like educational resources healthcare resources um even like electricity and energy and things like that and so i think technologies like this could like empower our communities to create better products and that was kind of for us i mean our whole founding team is is from south africa and so for us that was just like a massive motivating factor as well mm. yeah it's super interesting um well and and would you consider yourself an accelerationist? What do you mean by that? Uh, well, I mean, have you heard have you heard of the accelerationist movement? Oh, interesting. Okay, so uh, I think it's called E slash ACC. If you're not very online like myself, and you're not very on Twitter like myself, uh, uh, maybe you haven't you haven't heard of it. But I believe it stands for effective accelerationist. Um, and so these people are basically uh, saying we need to accelerate as fast as possible so that we can create technology like this, so that we can start resolving some of the major issues of humanity. Um, and they're 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 countered against the existential risk people who want to slow down AI, put the put the things on so that we can you know slow it down so it doesn't kill us. Basically, I would consider myself go for it. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I know maybe it's just like the kind of culture that I grew up in in South Africa, but. <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of labels. I mean, if you want to, I just want to create impact, um, whether it's fast or slow, like impacts impact. I think the one thing is if people think that we need to still go a long way to create impact and they're mis- like massively mistaken, you know, just with the technology that exists already, you can solve a lot of problems that we kind of face currently in our communities back home. Um, and so that's kind of how I think of it. I think what you're talking about when it comes to like people, you know, wanting to speed up AI and slow it down in terms of regulation, I think it's just very tough to regulate something that we don't really understand yet. Um, I think if they regulate it too early, it's going to slow down innovation. And you're right, then you know maybe solutions to certain communities won't get there as fast as possible. However, I mean, if you just let it run freely, you never know what might happen. And I guess the main kind of burn that most people are thinking of is probably crypto recently. However, I still think crypto has like a bunch of wildly applicable and useful use cases. So um, I think that was just more regulatory kind of overview um, and like some bad actors, but um, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't really have any label where they're slowing down or speeding up. Uh, great, great answer. Um, uh, okay. So we've got impact. Interesting. How, 
what do you consider to be a really powerful impact or how do you view impact? What, how does impact kind of play a role in your life? Well, I mean, South Africa, our unemployment rate from 18 to 35 is 56%, um, which is pretty crazy to see. And so it's very interesting because we haven't hired a single person from the US yet in our team, even though we could, just because there's just a whole difference. You know, it's definitely not a skill thing. It's definitely not a, um, I guess, you know, we just want to hire South Africans. It's just a, like kind of um, work, not even work ethic, because Americans work extremely hard. It's just, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a cultural understanding of like kind of the privilege of a job um and just because we grew up with like if you have a job you're extremely lucky um i think in south africa if you make more than 700 dollars a month you're in the top five percent which is just crazy to think about um and so with impact i think it could be anything from just you know giving your time to to someone whether it's through advice whether it's through helping through like charitable um kind of uh, communities or like uh, uh, projects um one thing that was quite interesting is I listened to a talk by the previous CEO of Timberland and he spoke about how when he sold his company to Nike for a couple billion, he said how he thought he would just have billions in the bank and he could create massive impact. And he said what was a big wake-up call for him is he can create more impact being the CEO of a billion-dollar company than being someone who has billions in the bank with no title. And he says power plays an interesting role in impact, which was just an interesting perspective. I don't really mm-hmm. disagree or agree. Um, but yeah, I think impact is something that's always been like pretty close to me just from like, you know, kind of the background that I have uh, living in South Africa. And so, yeah, we're hoping that we can, you know, create an impact in businesses that obviously stimulates like, I guess, growth in companies, which stimulates more jobs. Um, and then obviously excelling in like, you know, research and innovations that can, you know, power communities, whether it's electricity, healthcare, education, et cetera. Um, okay. So interesting. Are you guys remote, remote or are you based inside of South Africa? No. So uh, we're all remote. So me and my co-founder are in New York City and then some of our employees, they travel Europe and sometimes come to the U.S. for a couple of months. Um, yeah, we're based here just because most of our clients are here, investors are here. Um, and I guess the, the innovation of what we're kind of creating is all here. So it's great to kind of interact with those minds, I guess, on a daily or even weekly basis. And why not San Francisco? We tried it last year for four months. Um, there were a lot of things. I mean, one is, um, yeah, I think the homeless and drug situation was pretty bad when I went there. Um, you know, in South Africa, we have a lot of poverty, but like and homelessness, but the drug situation mixed with that was just a lot to see. Who is, um, we also have a lot of clients in Europe and Asia, Australia, South Africa, or like Africa. And so just the time zones was quite a difficult thing to manage between our team. Three is just New York makes it very easy to fly back home to the Europe to San Francisco, whereas San Francisco is kind of a lot further away from everything. Um, and to be honest, everyone says, you know, Cerebral Valley and AI is all happening in uh, San Francisco, which is probably true. But I mean, a lot of the top companies that I know, like, um, you know, Lightning AI and a few others all based in New York. Um, and so I, I think you can kind of build a great company from anywhere. And I just actually prefer the lifestyle, to be honest, of New York. I like the big city um constant always on with san francisco seemed like a very like hard-working culture but also just kind of laid back and relaxed and where i feel like new york's yeah i'm glad you said it <laughs> yeah 
Um, uh, yeah, I come from San Francisco, I, well, and I come from even the even more boring part of it, the peninsula. Um, born and raised on the on the boring peninsula, and it was it was so interesting to grow up there, uh, and then move to San Francisco for the past fifteen years, up until a few years ago, um, and see the the kind of. Uh, and a lot of people say that that boringness is the reason why it's so innovative is because you can't really, you know, if you're in Palo Alto, the bar, that one bar that everybody goes to closes at, you know, maybe like 10 a.m. or whatever, you know, 10 p.m. or whatever. And uh, and so like the fact that it is boring allows you to focus so much on 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 your job. And then San Francisco was this like wild, weird, weird wild card uh, that showed up for technology, particularly in the second tech boom. Uh, where you know that weirdness kind of mixed with technology, whereas before San Francisco was sort of sort of a, a, an outlier, not really part of the Silicon Valley. Um, but to your point of essentially New York having this interesting thing, and then Cerebral Valley kind of happening there with the internet and with kind of the dis, um, decentralized nature of where we're headed, it seems like after a certain point, because I imagine that maybe before you guys did YC, but maybe not, maybe you were already running a, a, a company, but YC basically gave you the, the access to uh, this decentralized social network uh, that you no longer need to be in San Francisco. Because if you need an intro to somebody at Cerebral Valley, I'm sure you can get it. Um, but like, if you don't have that network, then it might make sense to go to San Francisco to build that network or go to New York and stuff like that. What do you think about what I just said in terms of this decentralized social network and that the fact that it's just like maybe innovation no longer has a physical location tied to it? To be honest, um, I know I've kind of disagreed with people on this quite a lot because I think like in-person relationships, especially for like B2B companies is, is so important. Um, I think for B2C, not really. And sure, like, I mean, if I message you and you're in San Francisco and I ask you to intro me to someone, you probably will. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll get the deal. Maybe I won't. It won't really, doesn't really matter. Um, I think the biggest thing is that being connected to someone personally, like seeing them in person, establishing a relationship and them introing you to someone, or even if it's their company, they'll definitely take a harder look just because they kind of know a bit more about you. And like, maybe they even like interacting with you. Um, and I think that plays such a massive part, just, you know, seeing how competitive it is in the startup landscape. Um, you know, even if your product's slightly worse, an exec or a senior person is going to choose your product and hopefully like get you to resolve maybe the one or two issues that you might have that a competitor does better. Um, and so I think it's ex extremely important. I think the one thing is, you know, a lot of people underestimate in business how important a relationship is, especially from like the startup world. They think like build a great product, advertise it and people will come. And, you know, obviously that's true. Um, but I think even more than that, if you really want to, you know, penetrate large businesses, you have to do a lot of relationship building. I think you need to be in certain areas in order to do that. And mm -hmm. so I'd like make a pretty conscious effort, even though we can work all over the world, I make a pretty conscious effort to like go to the different, you know, cities where we have large clients, where we might have large clients um, and really just get introduced to the ecosystem. Um, but the whole reason, like you kind of mentioned, was that when we did YC, I went to San Francisco for four months to really just penetrate the network. So you know, we didn't know investors, we didn't have any clients, we didn't have any friends there. Um, and now I can say I know quite a lot of people and like, you know, we've got some good clients and you know, obviously our investors are all there. So yeah, I think it was a pretty phenomenal move from us. Mm. Uh, what you said about relationships is super interesting. Um, what What is the main difference or what, like, what is the essential principles of making great business relationships and how does that differ from making great personal relationships? Um, to be honest, I think they're the same. I think if you make any relationship for the pure fact of like getting a business deal, then you're already in it for the wrong reasons. Um, I think if you approach every 
you know, relational. I'm not saying, you know, be friends with everyone. I think um, one is you probably don't have the time and probably you don't want to just spend time with people you don't really kind of connect with. Um, I think the first thing is like, I always try to look for something that I admire in someone that I meet, um, you know, whether it's like their opinion on something, whether it's something that they're doing, whether it's business or whether it's like in fashion or art, um, kind of admire something, or maybe it's like a character trait, like they're extremely generous. Um, and I try to look for something that I can like really admire. Um, and then two, I, you kind of always look for someone who has some sort of like value overlap. I think if someone, you know, sure you can have differences and I think it's great to have friends that challenge you on certain aspects, but I think if your values differ too much, it might be hard to connect, um, you know, on a, like a deeper level. And so I think that's kind of the first step that I always try to look for. And, you know, if our businesses um, kind of have the ability to, you know, operate in a business relationship as well, that would be phenomenal. But um, if not, then so be it. Like, I, you know, still have a great time with you. I still learn a lot from you. And sure, they can obviously still, you know, connect to other business people. But I think, yeah, trying to get something out of a relationship is kind of the wrong way to approach it, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Um, and then what happens if you get stuck in a relation in a business relationship with somebody that you don't actually like on a personal level? Like, do you have any uh, like tips for that? Well, then I guess it's just all business. And I mean, I mean, not you probably have to still do the dinners and like the drinks just to like keep them as a happy business customer. Um, to be honest, it's quite nice when you get to a point where your business is doing so well that you don't really care if you lose them as a customer. Um, I can't say that we're there yet, but uh, yeah, maybe in the future. Interesting. Um, okay. So we've talked about relationships. We've talked about technology. We've talked about um, all these different things. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? I know. I think my, um, like my kind of life journey is maybe a bit different from like most people. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, are you interested to hear it? What's that? Oh yeah. I said, are you interested to hear it? I mean, I don't want to. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I grew up in South Africa. I studied uh, computer science and actuarial science or like mathematical statistics. And um, I was always fascinated by like building and coding. I started building robots and then I wanted to learn how to code these robots. I learned coding. Um, by the time I got to university, I kind of taught myself a lot of the syllabus that um, I got a little bit bored that I uh, started just creating companies. And, um, you know, not I didn't create companies for the sake of making money or trying to be an entrepreneur. I just kind of fiddled with projects and posted them online to, you know, because it was interesting. And, um, you know, kind of the first business we were doing was making mobile apps when uh, Instagram got sold for a billion dollars. And we had a contact in Silicon Valley where um, we were making apps for like $50,000 for six weeks of work. And we were 19 years old, um, which was like pretty phenomenal. And then, you know, doing kind of a software development house like that, was pretty frustrating because you're constantly dealing with clients, changing requirements, things like that. That me and two friends started a company kind of that was a peer-to-peer -peer storage and parking marketplace. So you could rent out, you know, storage space or parking space in your house and obviously rent it out and make extra cash. And we kind of did that for about two or three years um, while I was still studying. We ended up kind of, um, our majority investor ended up kind of buying the entire company. And then from there, I was, you know, my friends are still studying. I didn't know what to still do and I was still studying. So I did my thesis in machine learning and um, kind of blockchain technology and created a, a system that does like makes it easier for companies to hire graduates from university. And we basically took the graduate recruitment cycle from six months to about 250 milliseconds. And um, we had like McKinsey using us, we had Deloitte, Alan Gray, uh, you know, all using our product from the get-go. It's probably the fastest company I've had getting product market fit, which was great. 
for that company. We even got like funding from one of the large universities in South Africa. Um, and the company ended up dying because uh, the person that was assigned to us from the university just, you know, he's 40 years old. He told us we're 21. We don't know what we're doing. And it's just like a South African mindset. I think if we were in Silicon Valley, you know, people would have told us like, go for it. And they believe in us. Whereas back home, that's completely different. And um, from there, I was actually looking for a job overseas. And um, one of my friends was starting a e-commerce company and he needed me to help him help like build out all the softwares, the mobile apps, the websites, backend. And um, this is the Instacart equivalent I told you about. And that company, we started kind of a year and a half before COVID happened. And then obviously when COVID happened, that company just kind of took off and blew up that we went from doing $150,000 a month in revenue to doing more than She's $200,000, $250,000 a day in seven months. Um, and yeah, we eventually got acquired by by Walmart uh, two years ago. Um, and then I was about to take a kind of a sabbatical from that company. And I had two investors approach me saying, they don't care what I do, what area it is in, um, how long it takes me to do, but here's some money and just go create something. So literally two days after I resigned from the previous company, I then uh, started this, I guess, Cerebrum. Um, and yeah, since then, it's just been like a phenomenal journey getting to the States uh, and kind of building this company here. And again, like a whole founding team is, you know, people from back home. Um, so it's been pretty phenomenal to build with them as well. So if you started right after, uh, right after you got acquired, when was your last vacation? Within a month of taking, of like quitting, I like had severe burnouts. I started for a month and then I like literally just took a two week holiday and I went to like a remote place or like a little town in South Africa put my phone in the cubby hole of like a car and for two weeks, like no one could contact me and didn't see my phone. All I did was sleep, read on the beach and I went gambling. Like that's what I did. <laughs> Wait, uh, uh, can you share the name of the town? It might feel like a, fi- a good find. Um, what's the uh, name? Muscle Bay. Muscle Bay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Uh, are you a surfer by any chance? No, I'm okay. a bodyboarder, but otherwise I do like water skiing or wakeboarding. Okay. Is Muscle Bay good for that? I think it might be better for um, fishing. I mean, that's what I was actually doing there. Uh, I wouldn't say so much. I mean, I can't actually remember. I went so long ago, to be honest. Okay, so uh, I love the story. Thank you for sharing. There's a lot of different stuff that we can talk about. Um, The machine learning and blockchain thing sounds really interesting. Um, uh, Also, what it's like to be a young person who's making a lot of money and what that does uh, is something interesting. uh, I mean, and the robotics as well. Let's talk about that. Where, where like, I've been seeing crazy videos uh, in terms of robots and the LMs, and not not only with LMs, but also just like crazy advances in terms of robotics and uh, and stuff like that. What's what's your take on the current landscape for robotics? Well, I mean, I think everyone knows of Boston Dynamics. Um, interesting enough, I was I follow Suhail, who's the previous co-founder of Mixpanel. Um, and he's trying to, you know, he always gives himself these like years of diving into something. So last year was machine learning and this year's robotics. Um, I definitely haven't stayed in as close as I was when I was a kid. Um, you know, I always say I should have done maybe electrical engineering. But um, the current landscape in robotics, I think is like extremely interesting. Again, you've still got the on-device kind of latency issue of running these things. Um, I think the one thing with um, robotics, and it still seems pretty apparent today, is just like, context awareness. I think you could still see that with self-driving cars. Um, I think you can even see with Boston Dynamics, it's obviously getting like insanely great, but uh, I don't know if you ever bought those Legos that you programmed to do certain instructions, like take one step forward, three steps yeah. left. Yeah. Um, 
it still seems like we're kind of in that era, which is quite interesting. Um, and I think it's just got to do with like data and like these on-device processing of things. So, And also the fact that reality is what John Verveke calls um, combinatorially explosive. And like a robot is basically trying to understand reality. And it's so interesting that we have all these senses that we have and all this complexity inside of our brains, but it just like seems normal that you know we're understanding reality exactly as it is and you have to go through like trial and error and just and pain and lots of suffering to realize you're not experiencing reality whatsoever what it is like and like and and but we have this machinery inside that gives us this picture that seems really convincing and now we have to program the robots to have that same level of understanding and just like that's such a huge job like the LLMs were just like one step of this kind of reasoning ability, which is huge and impressive. And and but like the idea of actually implementing that inside of robots is a whole other thing. What do you think about that? Well, I think also like the toughest part about it is just the data at our disposal. Um, you know, most of the issues, at least initially, that kind of self-driving cars has was first collecting the data. And that's why even still today they have those self-driving cars just like taking photos of like streets and like people walking. Um, you know, with LLMs, it was easier because we have like a trove of information on the internet that's all text-based. And so to suddenly now get like context awareness across different cities that have different like mm -hmm. rules of how you cross the robot, um, you know, what different buildings look like, what different signs look like, um, just getting all of that data is something that I think, you know, we need to somehow do. And I think we just don't have, you know, that much data. I think you'll need significantly more than what's just an LLMs again, because it's multimodal. It's like, First of all, you know, what images am I seeing? What is surrounding the image? What is the text on the images? Things like that. Mm. Um, so I think we're pretty far from from seeing something like that. Mm. That's super interesting. And I want to kind of take it back to something we were discussing earlier, which is kind of like what happens when the robots have this ability to have all these different senses that we don't have? Well, and do you think that uh, like, and I guess maybe as a personal choice, we don't even have to talk about this if you don't want to, but um, what do you think about the, the the sort of merging with the robots as well? Because once these robots have these other senses and have these powers that we don't have, then the question is like, well, why don't we have that as human beings? And what do you think about this as this like this this choice that we can make in order to merge or not merge with the robots, if that even is possible? I know. I think it's going to be tough to regulate because, you know, what's going to stop someone from making the personal choice that they want, like, a, like a chip in their brain? Um, you know, if people are willing to pay for it, then someone's going to get it. Um, you know, I think it's the same with steroids. You know, people have always showed that, you know, they're extremely competitive and they're willing to do what it takes. Um, and so I think steroids is just like the current example that you can compare it to. And so the same thing with chips in the brain. I mean, I personally wouldn't like to, but it also depends to what extent. If it's simply just like putting something that I can have quick access to information, like, I think it's too early for me to say what it'd be like. I'd preferably prefer not to do it. Um, but again, you never know. Like, you know, I'm pretty competitive. So it'd be interesting to see what the landscape is like. Well, and and yeah, well, and it always comes down to that question of like, once you actually see it and then once everybody else is doing it, you know, we're we're, we're mimetic creatures. And so we, we you know, like take our cue from other other people and what they're doing, regardless of how wise it might be that what they're doing. Um, and and but the but you had mentioned the chip inside of the head, but it might not even need that. Like it might just be like a MRI um, technology that's basically just scanning the thoughts, and then uh, and then that's where the connection comes in. Although that's maybe just just a 
just a retrieval process. I'm not sure how the actual, well, oh, it would go through our senses. So then the, I guess the robot would essentially be able to, um, if we got to AGI, then they could basically manipulate us using various um, various senses in order to kind of create new thoughts in our brain. And, you know, it all, all goes back to like theory of mind as well. And like, if we have AGI and we have something that's smarter than us, way, way smarter, it has a better theory of mind than us, uh, then it can manipulate us. And that goes into that kind of um, existential. I know. We'll go for it. Yo, I think these like existential, like, um, questions are so interesting because you know people are so worried about robots being better than us but like but why are they worried um i think it depends like i wouldn't really care if someone was a better you know soccer player than me or like swimmer or if like someone was a better doctor if they're saving lives saving lives um you know i think it also depends on like you know is it that we still want humans to be the, like the main innovators and we don't want people like stealing our thunder mm. i don't know i think like it just seems like an ego thing to be honest for a lot of it i mean obviously on the other side of it it's definitely not that um i think um Look, obviously, there's definitely some dangers. I'm not discounting that. I think for a lot of people, there's definitely an ego thing. And then on other sides, I think, um, yeah, it would be interesting to see, like, what do, what do people actually want to do? Um, you know, like, what do you want to spend all your time on? If it's thinking away and a robot can help you come up and you're doing something with a robot to come up with something that you like, is that not satisfying? Because it's not you coming up with it alone. I don't know. I just find, like, questions like that pretty interesting. Um, I wouldn't mind working with a robot. So... Mm. Mm. Um, what is something, oh man, I had a great question, but now it's gone. Um, uh, so, okay. Oh man, I really, I wanted to ask that question, but now it's gone. Uh, uh, and, um, okay. Well, so what wouldn't you do with a robot? Like what is a line that you know that you wouldn't cross right now? Oh, well, I wouldn't, um, be like romantically involved with the robot um it's quite funny because like one of our clients actually is like a kind of like a personality chat like chatbot kind of like character character ai and uh they have like over two thousand personalities that they've trained and what's interesting is like one of the personalities is a girl i met at the bar and um, obviously i mean they're one of our clients i've obviously tested how the app works and to be honest it's pretty phenomenal um the response i get i mean it's just text based but um yeah i think like you know human connection i think that's something that like look maybe a robot could give it to you i just hope i would never get there um but yeah that's probably a line i would never cross i also wouldn't you know kind of allow robots to probably make decisions on like human life um you know i think that's something that should always be kind of in human hands unless it comes to like saving lives maybe in like you know specific situations like firefighting or being a doctor or things like that um but mm. sure i think those are kind of two lines that i'd probably never cross mm. What do you think is the first use case that robots will actually take over from human beings? Like what's the first like clear thing that, uh, that, I mean, I, robots have already done a lot, I guess. If you look at a factory floor, you, you, like there's a hu huge amount of jobs that have already been automated. And I actually had a very interesting interview with Saman Farid. I think he was a, also a YC graduate uh, with a company called Formic, which was very, very interesting. They were um, basically offering robotics as a service. So you pay them like some amount of money and 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 they bring in the robot and they they actually uh, automate parts of it as well. Um, but what do you, well, I guess, I guess this is a better ask of that question. What do you think is the first kind of robotic takeover that will happen and be meaningful in terms of interacting with con consumers? Like, what do you think is the first thing? Like, is it going to be um, massage? Is it going to be uh, maids? Is it going to be plumbing? Like, what's that first kind of like big use case that robots will take over? 
to be honest, I think, um, I mean, look, obviously, like maybe domestic workers could be one. I mean, I already have a Roomba. Um, I wouldn't say maybe that. I would say like maybe building houses and construction. Um, you know, it's still pretty like dangerous. It's a lot of like heavy listing. There's a lot of accidents in it. Um, one big thing in South Africa is mining. Um, I would say mining is a massive one. I mean, there's tons of like, I guess, kind of not diseases, but chemicals um, that go around there. Machinery, like I've heard like horrific accidents that happen because the machinery there, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but like, it's honestly like you're in an avatar movie seeing how big those trucks are. Um, and so I would say mining is a pretty big one. Um, so yeah, I would say things like that. Uh, as you were talking, I, th I started to think about robots, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, asteroid mining and all this different stuff. And it's going to be once we open up that ability to have robotics that can do a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, and then we have this kind of space infrastructure that we can start to send out a lot of things, which is already being built. Um, and then just sending a bunch of robots to mine asteroids sounds pretty interesting. Have you thought about any of that stuff? Not really. I mean, space travel is always something that's like pretty interesting. Um I know just the amount of resources it takes and like how expensive it's been. Um, how some people still think like it's fake is quite interesting. Um, so yeah, I know space travel is like a very interesting thing. Like a lot of people have like done the, you know, gone to the international space station, have bought like those private, private trips. Um, I know I, I would dig to do it one day. Um, I just don't know how quickly they're going to open it up to consumers. And to be honest, I'm not, uh, I don't know, I think it's like $30 million. I don't have that at the moment to spend on space travel. So well, you will soon with Cerebrium and, and all the crazy AI stuff going on because you guys seem to be in a good good spot in terms of uh, in terms of what's needed because I'm sure a bunch of companies are starting to think about exactly what you guys are doing. Um, uh, well, cool. So thank you so much for coming on the show and, and uh, how can people find out more about you and find out more about Cerebrium? Yeah, they can just um, add my LinkedIn, Michael Louis um, on Cerebrium. It's uh, cerebrium.ai is our website. Um, and yeah. Cool. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.